this one CMO, I should introduce you to him. He's a really nice guy. I asked him for advice. Uh, he was the CEO of a company now, but he was the CMO of a billion dollar company uh, before he started his own startup. And he told me the CMO's role is basically to dream about where the future is and lay down the railroad before everyone realizes you don't know where you're actually going. <laughs> In this episode, I finally got to talk to one of my most awaited guests, Gregory L. Frank, the head of marketing of Empire Flippers, which is one of the biggest curated online business marketplaces where you can buy existing online businesses and flip them for amazing prices. So in this episode, I'm going to talk to Greg about his journey as a marketer. Anyone that's in marketing, especially if you work in a bigger company, you're kind of the black sheep of the family. Like you are the least understood and the most important part of the company. Usually the CEO has no clue about marketing. That's just very common. Like they have a little, maybe like an inkling, but they're usually closer to the sell side than the marketing side. Your CFO, you're in a much bigger company can often be your arch enemy as a marketer. Greg has also spoken at events like the SEO Mastery Summit and Affiliate World. He's a very creative marketer and fun fact, he's also an author of a fantasy novel. So if you're interested, I will link it down in the show notes. Since the episode is super duper interesting, I'm just going to dive in and let's get started. My name is Greg Elfrink. I'm the head of marketing over at Empire Flippers. We help people buy and sell online businesses from affiliate sites, SaaS, e-commerce to uh, agencies, you name it. If it's digital, we can help you make an exit or acquire one if that's more of your game. Amazing. So thank you so much for joining. I've been so excited to have you on the podcast because you are, I think, I only know two CMOs in person. You are one of them. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, so... I've been, you briefly mentioned like how you got to marketing, but it was really just a really brief sentence. You told me you were in Alaska and you just bought a course on a credit card, but can you tell us like the, the very beginning of, of your journey? Sure. Uh, I wish it was just one course. I bought a lot of courses and a lot of them were really bad. <laughs> so, <laughs> really? Um, yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, so my, my background was you know, born and raised in Alaska. Uh, after high school, there's kind of like three routes an Alaskan can go. It's uh, college, which wasn't for me. I was never very good at school. Um, and then military is a very common one, which also not a good deal for me because I'm not good with authority typically. So that wasn't going to work out very well. Um, and then is oil field. So I went into the oil field. I was an oil field roughneck. He absolutely hated it. Uh, I have a lot of good friends from that experience, but I hated it. So I always knew about this wild world of internet marketing, and I really wanted to be a part of it. Uh, I was a bit of a weird kid growing up because I had a, a TV in my room, and I'd stay up to like often 3, 4 a.m., even on school nights, and the TV was just playing, and there'd be all these infomercials. So I got absolutely fascinated with infomercials and how they marketed it. You know, like it was so zany and weird and intriguing. Uh, like, why are they spending 45 minutes explaining these knives to me? You know, stuff like that, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so my very first foray into marketing actually was when I was in eighth grade. I convinced my dad to let me buy this $500 Google AdWords course. And he's like, you're definitely going to lose it. But, hey, it's not drugs. So this will be your first lesson in business about losing money. Uh, and he gave me the $500. He was absolutely right. I went through the course. It was way beyond my eighth grade brain 
couldn't figure out the Google ads, spent all my money and lost it all. And that was with affiliate marketing. But fast forward years and years later, uh, I'm in the oil field. I still had the dream alive and uh, everything I tried hadn't worked, but I knew I was a fast writer. So uh, after my 12 to 18 hour shift on the, in the, on the rig, I would go into this one corner in the Arctic Circle of my camp that, you know, decent Wi-Fi. And I would do freelance writing because I knew SEOs all hated to create content and I undercharged everyone. I think I was charging half a cent per word, something like that. And uh, yeah, I used that to build up a massive portfolio of, of work. And ironically, a lot of famous SEOs back in that day and still some of them that are known names today, I actually wrote a lot of their affiliate sites without them knowing uh, that it was me. Um, I, I, it's funny in my position with EF, I'll get some of those uh, famous SEOs telling me about a website. It doesn't happen as often anymore because they've sold them, most of them, but I would have them uh, come up to me, hey, I have this one website about X. I'm like, oh, is it this site? And they're like, how do you know? Like, is that content agency you hired actually outsourced it to me? <laughs> I wrote the whole That's thing. Amazing. Uh, yeah, so uh, I, I hated uh, the oil field and I was hell bent on getting into marketing because uh, I view marketing as kind of uh, the most applied form of art and I view myself uh, as a bit of an artist. So uh, yeah, that, that's my story in a nutshell. It was a, a 10 year overnight success story. I'm getting, <laughs> getting into 10 marketing. year overnight success story. I'm <laughs> going to quote you on this one. Yeah. I love this. Um, but could you tell me a little bit? Like you told me briefly that uh, over the 10 years you tried things and failed. Uh, was it courses that you do you think you failed? What, what is failure uh, for you? Mostly? Yeah. So some of the courses were bad. Like I said, they were just scammers out for my money. And I was the perfect target market because uh, I was desperate to get out of the oil field. Uh, I would do anything. They would use that copywriting line like, oh, this course is only, only like one coffee a day for a year. Are you willing to give up coffee a day for, for a year? Right. Smart copywriting, by the way. Um, I would not give up coffee, though. <laughs> well, I just put it on my credit card, so I didn't give up my coffee and went deeper into debt, which was fantastic, you know, uh, really living the American dream on that. But, uh, but yeah, some of the courses were really good and my uh, implementation of it was bad. So a lot of courses get a lot of bad flack and I'd be the first to say that a lot of courses are BS, but some courses are really good and the student is the one that's really bad. And I, it wasn't that I was necessarily bad at uh, everything. It was just also I was working so much. Like I remember very specifically, I ran um, this SEO agency for a while and I was cold calling chiropractors when I was off uh, the rig. So every now and then I get a week off, two weeks off, something like that from uh, the rig. And I would just cold call and I would start getting some momentum, but then I would have to go back onto a rig. <laughs> the momentum would be destroyed. So I, would, I brought in my friend uh, to be the sales guy and he is not a sales guy at all. I'm much more of a sales guy than him and I'm a pretty terrible sales guy. And so that failed. Um, eventually, I got really depressed. I, I tried affiliate sites. I tried agencies. I tried a little bit of everything. Um, then I did the freelance writing and kind of through just this almost cynical grit, I powered through it and I was making like a thousand bucks a month, a uh, thousand to fifteen hundred bucks a month. And I, I remember one of my clients, he found I was still on the on the rig and he was like, wow, if I was you, I'd be so burnt out. And I told him like, look, man, I've been burnt out for years. Doesn't mean you get to stop paying your bills. <laughs> you got to keep going. Right. Uh, but that gave me a lot of confidence, that freelance writing gig. And I eventually started my own affiliate sites again. And I was like, come hell or high water, I'm going to make this happen. Uh, fast forward, like not even that long, I think it was like three or four months after I made that and I was working on uh, a beard a beard affiliate website. Uh, yeah, I, I got the, yeah, I didn't have a beard back then. Back then I couldn't grow one oh, at okay, all. Okay. Um, but I, I got the job offer with EF. I saw they put out this content marketing uh, specialist role. And I'm like, 
here's a job I'm never going to get because uh, I applied for many marketing jobs and no college degree, no formal education, even though I could talk circles of marketing around most people that I, I met, I talked to in the industry. Uh, but I got the job and I was so shocked. I almost didn't accept it because it was kind of like one of those things of the fear of success where I thought, here's my chance to prove myself that I really am terrible at this. <laughs> I don't know if I want to do that. Uh, so my my best friend, David, uh, he lives in China nowadays. He told me he would fly back to Alaska and like break my legs. Uh, he actually like gave me a worse threat than that, but that's the threat I always remember. He always corrects me when I'm in person because I can't remember the real threat he gave me. But he told me uh, if I don't do this, he'll basically come and beat me up because uh, it's something I've always wanted to do, right? And so I did, and I, you know, fast forward from writing blogs for EF to now I run the entire the entire show basically when it comes to marketing for us. Uh, so it's been a hell of an experience, you know, wild ride. It is like, um, and how long were you trying before you got into Empire Flippers? Like, was it like five years, I guess? Or trying to get into marketing? To, yeah, yeah. About seven years. And you're doing years. your so, affiliate sites, and you did your yeah. own agency, which is like a lot of things. Like you did <laughs> so many things, like. <laughs> Seems like a ten-year career for me. I I published uh, Kindle books too uh, throughout that. Some of my own uh, short fiction works, but also some marketing books. Like uh, I posted one on how to make a thousand dollars a month as a freelance writer, which was my experience of what I did. And uh, a famous internet marketer at the time, Mr. Alex Becker, he promoted the book actually. Uh, and I made like two grand in a day. Like, oh, this is dope. <laughs> like. Uh, and then I uh, I gave this speech in front of all these real estate people about relationship marketing. Uh, and I made five grand in 30 minutes. And I was like, I am a king of this world. I am oh, so good yes. at this. And uh, the guy who bought it, it was one customer I got from that speech who paid me five grand. Fast forward like six months, I barely had money to even like drive to his office. And he was like, I knew this would happen. I was like, what do you mean? And like. I could tell you're a really smart guy, Greg, but you way undercharged. That's why I paid five grand. You should have been charging like 10, 11 grand because I knew you were going to work so hard for me. You would have like no money in the end. <laughs> and he was right. So that was a painful but funny lesson I learned from him. I'm still good friends with that guy. He's an insurance agency owner, but also a business consultant. So he gave me the first harsh lesson that entrepreneurs often undercharge. <laughs> I see. Wow. And uh, how long have you been with EF, uh, Empire Flippers? Seven years now. So uh, years. last April, was uh, we crossed seven years. Wow, congrats. Yeah. <laughs> Thank and, you. And how did you start? Uh, I was just a blogger. I uh, wrote the blog posts. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And how, okay, okay, then now walk me through this journey. Like in, during the seven years, you started out as a blog writer at the company, and now you are head of marketing. How? I don't know, just like kind of like tell us how, what does it feel like in the past seven years, your growth and, and what were the kind of like levels that you had to go through? So it, it's, a, it's a weird thing to reflect on because it's hard to know uh, what degrees of evolution happen when, but um, I still remember when I got onto the first podcast, I believe it was the Authority Hacker podcast where I made my first appearance, like kind of in the public light, more, so to speak. And the reason why I did it was specifically because uh, Justin Joe, our founders, like they had their own podcast, but they were kind of like burnt out on the whole thing. So they weren't doing podcasts. They weren't doing like appearances and stuff like that. So I wanted that. Like I, I thought the company should be doing that. And so I decided, well, if no one's going to do it, I'll do it. <laughs> and that was like the constant like thing, like, okay, if no one's going to do this, then I will do it. Cause I think that's a need for us to do. 
And so I would always just do that. Um, I was always making plans within plans, schemes within schemes. Like my team, they often tell me when they view one of my strategy, I've, I've had to way whittle it down now because what I used to do is I show them the entire grand strategy of what I wanted us to do. And they're like, oh my God, what are we doing? Are we making microchips? Because the, the, the web flows were so complex. And uh, I realized I intimidated them into inaction. So now I never reveal my grand strategy <laughs> in that in that way okay. anymore. I do it uh, slowly so people uh, don't get overwhelmed. But, uh, but yeah, so I, I've always uh, just wanted to move and do bigger things and grow. Uh, like I just love marketing. I used to joke to Justin Joe when I first got on board as the blogger. Like uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the show Mad Men, but I, I love that show. And I would always joke that uh, I'm going to be the, come the Donald Draper of this company, which was like the head of marketing for uh, that agency in the, in the show. Um, and then I did. Yeah, <laughs> so it worked. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, and was it hard for you to, like, during that journey, to kind of convince people around you and uh, Justin and Joe to like, hey, my plan is the shit? <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, it, it's uh, anyone that's in marketing, especially if you work in a bigger company, you're kind of the black sheep of the family. Like you are the least understood and the most important part of the company. Uh, usually the CEO has no clue about marketing. Uh, that's just very common. Like they have a little, maybe like an inkling, but they're usually closer to the sell side than the marketing side. Uh, your CFO, uh, if you're in a much bigger company, can often be your arch enemy as a marketer uh, when they're like giving, helping you to, like decide your budget. Our CFO is really cool and we're, we're good, but um, like investing in things like SEO is often really hard. Um, but yeah. in in general, uh, yeah, you, as a marketer, you are going to get beaten up everywhere as you grow in your career on every side because everyone thinks they're a marketer and they have a very little understanding of how marketing works. Like. I, I remember having a conversation with a sales guy about uh, a newsletter promo we wanted to do, and we did it. And I, I told him before, like, okay, you're probably going to get like 15 responses. And he was like, that's insane. Why would we only get that? Like, because there's no value here for the customer. Like, why would they do this? <laughs> it was only valuable for us if they do it. Like, we'll be lucky if we get 15. Uh, we got 20, which was significantly better than I expected. And then I had to walk back uh, through that because he was just so let down. I was like, dude, this is actually a great result. Here's like the benchmarks of how this normally works on a 2% uh, return, which is industry average for like direct marketing is about 2% conversions. And he then he understood, right? But marketing is often this very obtuse thing that is hard to pin down. And it's just confusing to people who aren't in it, who don't live and breathe it. So... Uh, as a marketer, your plans are always going to get crapped on. So my best advice is to make it seem like it's someone else's plan. <laughs> Don't make it seem like no it's worries. yours. <laughs> so would you say like, oh, I saw this other company do it or like, oh, um, I don't know, you would like wrap it this way? Yeah, yeah. Sometimes I would do something like that, or uh, I, I would do a little fib, like, hey, I heard you talking about this idea a couple of months ago. I think we should circle back on it. And really, what them talking about the idea was them shitting on me bringing the idea up. I repositioned it. Uh, oh, and like, oh, yeah, that, that is a smart idea. <laughs> so cool. So, yeah, so uh, as, as a marketer, you kind of got to uh, go with, go in with that perspective. It's a highly creative field, and that means a lot of people are attracted to it who don't understand it, uh, who are not creative, who don't understand marketing, or not even thinking about the principles. And you have to kind of like swarm around that to make them understand, you know, to make them see what the bigger picture of things. Because like 
marketing and sales, for example, they often get clumped together, but marketing and sales have very different goals. Like sales is like, how do I make money today? Marketing is like, how can I stay relevant to make money five years from now? Like part of that is like making money today, of course, and helping out the sales team and make revenue. But you also have to be thinking about the future and you, versus sales is often a much more short term inputs in outputs out. Right. Marketing is often not that case, especially when you get into bigger, bigger brand plays. But uh, but yeah, so a lot of it is like negotiation. And uh, I often tell uh, my own team, if you see anything that's successful, that's like huh, wow, we're doing really good on this. You should question it and ask what's wrong because usually marketing doesn't work. And that's another thing about marketing is you have to be a bit cynical even about your own work uh, because most marketing fails. That's the nature of the game. Um, but in embracing that actually allows you to do a lot more and have a lot more fun with the experimentation. And you learn a lot more by understanding that most things will fail. And that the things that succeed in marketing, though, you have insane leverage versus anything else that you can do. Like, a salesperson who's really good at cold calling, he can still only cold call one person at a time. A marketer who gets a marketing campaign running, like a like say a Facebook ad campaign, can literally move mountains with one person at an hour a week. But it's all about failing to get to that one piece of lever that you found that can work. Um, but how can you can you explain a little bit more like why do you think marketing usually fails but yet still move mountains? I still cannot understand the connection between those two. Sure. It's, it's, uh, so if you start a marketing campaign, let, let's uh, make the example like a Facebook ad campaign, right? Uh, so let's say you sell dog bowls. That tends to be always the thing I go to for some reason is dog bowls. Maybe I watch too much dog uh, reels. Yes. <laughs> I love okay. dogs. But, so you, you, you start this ad, right? On Facebook, you're targeting uh, people who might be dog lovers, who might own dogs, whatever. So you have some demographic information. Most likely, that ad is not going to work, like at least not at first. It will be unprofitable out of the gate. And if you weren't, like if you didn't know that most marketing fail, you might be like just shut off that ad and never do Facebook ads again. Throw up your hands and say, Facebook ads don't work. Google ads don't work. SEO is dead. You've seen this type of stuff, I'm sure. So what a real marketer does is understands that marketing is about failing so often that you eventually find the success. And so you, you're like, all right, this ad is not working. Let's try the blue dog bowl versus the red dog bowl. Okay, blue dog bowl is doing better. We're still losing money. How about we do an offer of buy one, get one free? Okay, now we're at break even. Okay, great. How do we get better on the break even? Can we raise prices? Can we uh, change the copywriting? Can we change the images? And then suddenly out of this litany of failure, now your campaign might be making two, $3 a day in terms of like total true net profit, which doesn't sound like a lot. And if you had a high, uh, one sales guy cold calling for $3 per sale, that'd be a terrible use of time. But with marketing with a Facebook ad, I can say, okay, let's scale this campaign up to 20 grand, 30 grand a day. And now those two, $3 become, could become potentially a seven figure revenue uh, channel for the e-commerce store. And that, that's what I mean by marketing is all about moving through the failures, learning through the data, the iterations. And once you find something, you can often scale it to the moon, which is something that's really fun in marketing. Okay. Uh, so um, what I'm taking out from this is that first of all, you uh, you, once you decide to try something, you not only try it once, but you need to try it multiple times and test it, right? And yep. so that not only brings in creativity, but also consistency with your plan. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So mm -hmm. you want to take a bunch of small bets that you that won't destroy the company if you fail. Uh, so 
you'll like at any given time i always recommending recommend having at least two marketing channels one that's the slow burn that's like a like an seo strategy and one that is a more active approach uh whether that's you know facebook ads linkedin ads whatever it is um but in that mix always recommending having experimentation going on either in those two channels or in another channel as well that are smaller bets so you can keep failing and learning uh, that, and that's how you kind of get all the data you need to yeah. uh, make like bigger and int more interesting moves. But yeah, that, that's the gist of it. Awesome. Um, and what does a head of marketing do at Empire Flippers nowadays? Mostly make my team question what I am doing. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Greg, no. are you, uh, did you wake up yet? Have you Where showered? are you? Where are you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, my, my team is always more worried, like, when do I sleep? Because uh, I have a team all around the world. So often when they send me a Slack message, I'm just, like, instantly on. I'm a little bit too terminally online. <laughs> so I'm trying okay. to, like, make that not as much. big part of my role now is a bit of a mentor and trying to breed the best out of people. So I've never been a micromanager. I very rarely tell people how to do something. But I'll come up with strategy and then I'll like, I won't reveal my strategy until I also have them come up with a strategy. And then we like compare notes and we I'll often simplify their strategy because so a classic thing, uh, and I used to do this too, a classic thing in my view that a, a newer marketer will do is they way overcomplicate things. So when my team comes up with a strategy is often overcomplicated and complexity fails, simplicity scales is, is the way I view things. So I simplify what they came up with because often what they came up with is very good ideas uh so i'm often the guy questioning my team in a constructive way like okay like well how should we do this like this is our goal this is like how many leads we want to get or what we want to do revenue wise how do we do that and i let them come up with those ideas and i almost act as, as like a marketing consultant to my own team in that in that regard because i think it's very important for mar uh if you're managing marketers we're creative people, which also means we're very emotional people a lot of the time. So we want to inspire rather than deprive. And by giving agency to the marketer, it allows them to reach their full potential. It's kind of like herding cats. You gotta gotta know like which way their the rhythm is going, which way the melody is going a bit. But uh, that's how you unleash their potential. And that's my main job is like, how do I help my team be the best marketer possible? So I'm less on the front lines and more doing that stuff now. Amazing. And now Empire Flippers, like how many channels are you guys managing? Uh, that How many channels do you have to oversee? Or is it not your responsibility? I don't know. Uh, no, it is my responsibility. Uh, so we used to do a lot more before the economic downturn. We had a lot of things going on. Uh, but the M&A industry has gone punched in the, in the stomach pretty hard <laughs> last year or so. So we, we were doing less than we did. Um, Though, shout out to my team. They're doing an amazing job with much less resources. Uh, so they're doing awesome for what we have to work with. So our, ma our main channel is still SEO. That's our primary bread and butter. Uh, we do conferences and networking because what I do in particular, it takes a lot of trust building, uh, which is often while you'll, you'll probably see me Anne, in the groups where I'm always joking or trolling with someone. And part of that like, is one, I'm just a troll and I enjoy having fun. But two, it builds trust with people. Uh, so when they do come to sell their business or buy a business, you know, they trust me, which is very important. Um, so we do conferences, networking events. We do digital events, uh, like digital conferences. 
Uh, the other marketing strategy we still do to this day is something I, I've been wanting to do since I first came on with the company, but you know, shout out to Justin and Joe, they were right not to do it when I first came on board because I didn't know what to do at the time. But uh, a few years later, I finally figured out how to do it, and that was our referral program. So I built our referral program up from scratch, and I got the guy I wanted in there. And now that represents like 20 to 22% of our revenue every quarter is that referral program. Uh, so that's a big one. But we've managed a bunch of different stuff like Facebook, uh, Facebook ads, LinkedIn ads, all the Google ads, even Amazon DSP ads. Uh, with our business in particular, ads are not as effective because of the long sales cycle and the amount of trust that's needed. So we rely a lot more on inbound marketing, which unfortunately is the type of uh, marketing that you can't scale to the moon as easily. But the nice thing about it is it's often very residual. So like I have blog posts I wrote seven years ago that still drives us revenue today. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Cool. Past seven years. What were your like your kind of quote quote mistakes that you can that you still remember to this day but as a marketer? I think what I said earlier, uh, the, the complexity fails and simplicity scales. That's definitely learned from my mistakes. <laughs> okay. What was the so, complex thing then that you were thinking so, about? So one of the things I did when I way overthought something is, and the, the, the important, the, like the lesson here is like the simpler your marketing funnel, the better typically. But I thought, okay, I saw that our average sales cycle was about 256 days. So I wanted to create a email workflow that would last for 300 days. So I literally wrote a workflow that depending on what actions you do, like if you went from the start to the end and you went through every single email based on your actions within our CRM, you would literally have about two years worth of content coming your way. Uh, and I thought this was brilliant. Uh, like this will capture them all the way, because our, our longest uh, time to sell a business, I think was like 637 days from the time someone was a subscriber to actually selling their business with us. So I wanted to capture that entire thing. And I even had things like based on what they said in vetting, in our vetting ticket, in our migration ticket, that they would get different workflows. And the issue that I came into is like, one, most people aren't reading those emails because they just don't want to. Like, that's not why they're here uh, with in our email list. So most of the time they don't want to read it. Uh, and second of all, they're busy. And third of all, this is so complex, it broke all the time. <laughs> like oh, the, the, this okay. workflow broke all the time. Uh -huh. uh, so I realized like, okay, this is kind of stupid. Uh, let's like go back to the drawing board and we made it extremely simple. And now our email open rates are way up. Our, e our revenue from email is way up from back in th those days when I thought this was a brilliant idea. So that's one of the things. Uh, Another thing that I did, which I thought I was also brilliant for at the time and realized I <laughs> later on I wasn't, uh, I created this thing that was like scoring leads inside of our CRM based on their engagement with our content and based on what they did on our marketplace. So I created this entire criteria and they would bubble up and go to our sales team when they reached a certain criteria. And I thought like, man, this is brilliant. I forgot the name I gave it. It was like ladder pixeling or something like that. I thought it was like, oh, it I'm, I'm going to be the next... Yeah, I, I thought I was going like definitely the next marketing guru, right? But then I got into uh, the B2B SaaS space and I found out what I had done was basically recreate a really shitty version of MQLs of marketing qualified leads. I was like, oh, <laughs> there was, so there's this whole thing that already existed I could have just tapped into uh, that I basically recreated a worse version of. <laughs> so I, I run into that stuff too and that's the problem not being formally trained, right? 
<laughs> I don't know if we are ever formally trained, though. So, I don't, like most marketers I talk with, like they became successful because they done a lot of things by themselves, right? Oh, for sure. I, I just mean like trained as in like working inside of a bigger organization. Because I've never had a marketing job outside of EF, right? So, uh, well, Justin Joe gave me some education uh, that was mostly product related and was kind of like left on to my own and still am like when it comes to marketing, like, well, what do you do that? What do you do here? I remember talking to this one CMO, uh, I should introduce you to him. He's a really nice guy. I asked him for advice. Uh, he was the CEO of a company now, but he was the CMO of a billion dollar company, uh, before he started his own startup. And, uh, he told me. The CMO's role is basically to dream about where the future is and lay down the railroad before everyone realizes you don't know where you're actually going. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and like, oh, that made me feel a lot better. You know, this guy has led much bigger organizations than me. <laughs> That's fantastic. But now EF is a huge company now. How many staff do you guys have? I think we're at around 65, 67. So... Uh, with, with the downturn, we like before the downturn, I think we were at 83, maybe 84 people, but we saw a lot of, uh, churn in our employee base as, uh, the economy kind of like, you know, the rug pulled underneath our feet. So, but that's, mm -hmm. you know, the nature of the game as well. Businesses are always contracting or expanding. So, um, mm -hmm. that's just the nature of the game. And was it because anything to do with AI or is it just because the economy is not doing well? Ah, so we are dealing with AI problems now, but unfortunately what caused uh, the downturn for us had nothing to do with AI. Uh, so what happened to us, and this is also a great lesson in terms of growth. So I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs, they kill their own business by trying to grow too fast, too much. And we had, uh, you know, like growth can be just as dangerous as not being profitable, basically. Um, but we have, we have these buyers, they had raised roughly $16 billion in capital to acquire businesses. And they were our best buyers. They were buying tons of stuff. This is how we were able to sell multiple seven-figure deals. I think the biggest business we've sold now is like 20 million. And it was because of these guys that we were able to do it. And they were all competing against each other. And they were in this fever pitch to buy uh, e-commerce businesses. And they were fantastic on the M&A side of buying the business. They were really good buyers, very savvy. But they were very newbie when it comes to actually running the businesses. So that's where the trouble began. They would buy these very profitable businesses and either make them stagnate or even a lot of times run them into the ground because they just didn't know what they were doing. Uh, they didn't get the scale that they wanted, so they didn't, ended up not giving the return to the investors that they had raised all this money from. And the investors, they came in like a swooping hawk and kicked out a lot of these guys from their own companies to take them over, right? Uh, now those aggregators are still buying businesses, but they're buying each other. They're buying the uh, the failing corpses of one another. So that was a huge blow for us in, in the M&A community. Mm -hmm. And we were somewhat lucky. We got less affected by that a little bit because we also sell a lot of content sites, not just e-commerce. But that was a major blow. Uh, anytime you see the public stock market like plunge, the private market is like probably five times worse, but because there's no Wall Street bets guys on Reddit like propping up a GameStop stock that keep people investing. There's none of that kind of hype in the private capital market. So uh, they're a lot more restrictive. And so we had this giant liquidity crunch, couldn't sell businesses. Uh, and now we have uh, bootstrap entrepreneurs coming back on the scene to buy businesses. So we're, we're going to recover. Uh, in terms of the AI side of things, like now we're facing that on the content site uh side because now buyers are a little bit scared of buying a, a bigger content site due to ai which i think is misplaced to be honest but you know if someone has a core fear um no amount of marketing is going to change that belief so 
Um, I think just time will play that and show them that they were wrong. But uh, we're dealing with that on the on the buy side for content sites right now is with, yeah. with AI. Uh, and to just briefly explain to people who might be not be familiar with SEO and AI content, like, oh, could you just explain why are people scared of AI? Like sure. To buy, so, sorry, so why are they scared to buy content site because of AI? Yeah, so it has less to do with AI content, though that is certainly uh, an issue in some people's minds. They think that the AI content is less quality. Uh, like, I'm a writer, so I get it, but for my test of AI content, the vast majority of, uh, like, as long as you have a good AI writer, the vast majority of that content is going to fit the bill for most blog content you need. Not in everything, but in a lot of niches, it's perfectly fine, in my view. And I don't think Google's going to punish it as much as people think it will. Uh, but the real scare is because of ch things like ChatGPT, generative search, uh, they f view it as the death of the search uh, business. So not so much the content side, but uh, like Google is going to die, that they're going to get replaced. And I don't think they're completely wrong, but I think they are overhyped on fear. Uh, like they think this is going to happen tomorrow, but in my view, it's not going to happen for like five years from now. And the person who probably leads that change is likely going to be Google. <laughs> so like Google is yeah. probably still going to be around. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they're a very smart company, but these people think that search is just going to die tomorrow. And uh, I've presented the case, the data of like, look, if Google put in a language learning model to replace all queries, that actually exponentially increases their cost to the point where they would be losing like an additional $15 billion in operational expenses of just having a language learning model to replace search. Not to mention the destruction of GDN, Google Display Network ads, all their, uh, uh, all, also like AdSense, all that stuff yeah. would be gone and the actual search ads would all be gone. So basically Google would go from being like, what is it, like a 40 billion a year company to like, I think it was like negative 6 billion. I have a blog post I read on it, but <laughs> They would go into the negative by doing that. So I just... Hi, if you listened to this far, thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave me a review on either Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or my YouTube channel. If you have any feedback for the show, please let me know on the Aspiring CMO Podcast social media pages on Facebook and Instagram, or send me an email on my website. Now let's get back to the episode. I just think it's incredibly unlikely the only company that could make that work would be Bing, and they would do it specifically to try to destroy Google, and they would do it knowing Bing would not make any more money, but Microsoft would be okay with that because Bing only represents like 5% of their net worth, or 5% of the revenue, rather, versus mm -hmm. Google, I think, probably represents like 90 95% of Alphabet. So that's why I think it's unlikely, but people uh, are very superstitious in the SEO space, so they, uh, they a lot of buyers think otherwise. They think the end is nigh, which... I just disagree with. <laughs> I see. Yeah. Thank you so much for this summary because it's like, I think um, <coughs> from your perspective, like everybody got like a very deeper view of what's going on in the um, online business and SEO space for sure. Um, also, when the first time I met you, you mentioned very briefly, like there are three things that matter in marketing and one of them was copywriting. And I forgot the other two. Can you tell us? Oh, what man. Are those? What was it? <laughs> uh, yeah, I did learn things. from you so the, the thing I learned from you that night was like um, people overthink the target audience uh, mm. the concept of target audience because if you sell something you should be thinking of what benefit it gives to anybody really 
like the yes, for example I, I, vacuum cleaner. I think that was yes, I, I remember those. Yeah, yeah. yeah so uh, I <laughs> thank you. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's two things: is I have a distaste for uh, customer avatars, like buyer personas. I think that's a waste of time. Like it's a good like practice for a new marketer to go through that. But in the real world, it's a waste of time. I don't believe in those. Uh, the better idea is a, a theory called jobs to be done, which is your product is a service or a uh, like imagine the product you're selling is like an employee that your customer is hiring. So if you sell a hamburger, your customer is hiring that hamburger to help them do the job of making them not be hungry anymore. Right. Now, there's all this stuff that goes into, uh, into jobs to be done. But if you had to, like a typical customer buyer persona, you might say, my customer is Bob the burger buyer. He likes to eat fast food. He gets like one or two meals. Maybe he's a blue-collar worker. But by doing that, you limit your entire marketing to just this blue-collar worker named Bob the burger buyer versus what about the mom with three kids is super busy who they, they hire the job of the hamburger at your fast food place to make them not hungry too, but they're doing it because they're super busy. They need something quick, right? So they need something quick that can do the job right. Uh, and so that's a whole different target market that you are missing out on completely by not tapping into the fundamental reason why someone might be buying your food. And that's the jobs to be done idea versus buyer persona. So I'm a big fan of that. The other thing that you're talking about, I think it was the uh, what I call the big filter. So there is a three-step process. And the big filter is basically it asks, it's a very simple strategy, but uh, basically you ask, all right, what, what are you selling? And at Empire Flippers, what we sell is businesses, right? Uh, who are you selling to? So who is your target market? Ours is entrepreneurs. People want to be entrepreneurs, investors, so on. Uh, and then number three is the emotional punchline of that filter, which everything else will revolve around, which is what do you really sell? And that's the emotional punchline because no one buys anything based on rationale. No one's buying anything based on logic. They'll lie to you and say they will, but they don't. Everyone buys everything, no matter how dry or how cool, based on emotion. So you have to get to the emotional punchline. At Empire Flippers, our emotional punchline is we sell an opportunity to change your life. Now, that might be a very positive opportunity or it might be a very negative opportunity, but it is an opportunity that could change your life, right? Because you could buy a business and it go, goes to shit. Like, oh my God, a 200 grand just gone, right? That could happen. That's the nature yeah. of business. Uh, but we're very upfront about it and that's part of our core value of being transparent. Um, but yeah, then from there, everything is built around that emotional punchline. So the copywriting, the marketing, uh, the sales uh, script, everything should be built around that punchline because that's what you're trying to tap into is the primal emotional reason why someone's going to buy from you. And if you can draft your offer around that, with a very good offer, you often know you need good copywriting because the between the emotion and the good offer, you you're like ninety percent there. Uh, wow, I love that. I think I'm. I need to reprocess this because it, like <laughs> when I went to school, for example, for and I took some digital marketing courses, they really, really wanted us to to think about uh, buyer personas, and like we got so many activities around uh, just buyer personas. But like once I started to be outside in the real world, right? And I started, <laughs> like I got my first marketing job and I realized that, oh, the buyer persona is like, it's really limiting myself. It's limiting, limiting me to and the company to um, sell our whatever we were selling at the time, yeah.
Uh, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I think it's very limiting and it stifles your creativity. Like as a marketer, you should have like a fence around your brain to like cage in that a bit of that creativity because you don't want to be free roaming, but uh, you just do more potent work if you put limitations on yourself. But I think buyer personas or limitations not needed. I, you're limiting yourself way too much with them. How about the emotional filter? Like the, how long does it take? I think a lot of people at the beginning really struggle to grasp what, what is that emotional thing that they are selling with their whatever dry product they have. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I've had people come up to me when I've given that big filter and they'll be like, well, that's great, Greg. You're selling like a really you know interesting product. I'm selling like you know, laundry detergent. <laughs> so yeah, exactly. I, 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 yeah. Uh, and it's all about like understanding how complex or how simple your funnel should be. The, the marketing message of laundry detergent is likely going to be a lot more simpler than an M&A firm trying to sell you an e-commerce store, right? This is like the, the complexity begets different necessities of its, uh, of how you put it into use. But, uh, in general, uh, I got this idea of the big filter from two places. One was a uh, SEO agency that was really good at making these content marketing campaigns. And the other one was from Mad Men, from Donald Draper giving a speech in that show, uh, selling Clorox, so selling laundry detergent. And he had this uh, commercial he showed to his uh, clients where it was his little boy playing around in a cowboy outfit. His dad was on the couch laughing. The mom was there laughing. His, their daughter was like glued to the TV, eating some food. And they were just having like a nice family night. And then at the end of the commercial, it shows Clorox, get your clothes clean. And the clients were like, wow, that was like really cool, but I don't get it. You barely showed our product or any of the features. And Don said, because your, those don't matter. What does your product really do? it gives time back to the family. Now, this was a time when washers and dryers were still like kind of new because it was in the 60s, right? So they were like more mainstream, but they were still like a relatively new device. Not everyone had one. Um, so the whole idea of the pitch was, we're not just going to make your clothes smell good. We are going to give you more time to spend with your family. Would you rather be washing clothes or would you rather be playing with Timmy? Yeah. And that was what they were doing. They sold family time. Uh, freedom from a mundane, dubious chore you probably hate. And that mm -hmm. was the emotional punchline of selling laundry detergent. And you could take any boring thing and break it down to this primordial emotional need that a human might have. And if you can create the creative around that concept, uh, even if it's very subtle, like you know, in the case of laundry detergent, not everyone would have that clue. It will still resonate with them like, psychologically. Mm -hmm. Amazing. And uh, lastly, uh, what would you recommend or what would you advise to an aspiring CMO and people who are starting their career in marketing? Mm. Uh, it's a good question. Um, I think having a lifelong love of psychology and storytelling is the most important thing for a marketer. Like, yes, you, the metrics are important, the P&L, the return on ad spend, all that stuff is important. But if your plan is to become the CMO, eventually you'll have someone do that for you. Like I'm terrible with numbers, so I have someone on my team help me with that. Okay. <laughs> so the like, like it's a play into your strengths, and I think uh, the best marketers are good storytellers. I I actually tell my team to read a book called uh, Plot and Structure by James Scott Bell, and it has nothing to do with marketing; it has everything to do with how to write a good novel. 
And at first you might be thinking this is totally unrelated, but it could not be more related. It's the best book on copywriting I've ever read because it teaches you the emotional beats of how to tell a good story. And the best marketers, they tell good stories with their products. Amazing. Thank you, Greg. And uh, yeah, I'm, staying very, I'm very thankful for you to join the show. And if people would like to reach out to you, how can they find you? Yeah, well, I appreciate you coming on, or letting me come on, rather. It was, a, it was an honor to be on. Uh, if someone wanted to connect with me, they could just shoot me an email, greg at empireflippers.com. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn, or you can add me on Facebook as well. Uh, apologies in advance if you add me on Facebook. I write a lot of poetry, so if you hate that, you might just want to hang out with Business Greg on LinkedIn. <laughs> Amazing. And I'll link everything down in the show notes and all the resources that Greg and I mentioned in the episode. So thank you for joining. Thank you.